Hildy is a body, chain-smoking, 70-something former journalist who lives on the Upper West Side in an apartment that has a portal back to 1973. Time travel has rules, though, and Hildy breaks them by traveling back with slacker healthcare aide Trista. Now, both women will have to come to terms with their pasts before they lose their chance at having a future. From Ahoy Comics comes Elisa Quitney's Guilt, that's G-I-L-T, a comic book that's Sex in the City meets The Golden Girls by way of The Twilight Zone. Grab a copy today from your local comic shop or your local bookshop, or you can get one by visiting alisaquitney.com guilt, that's G-I-L-T, or of course you can get one from the big online retailers, and I've put a link in the show notes to make the whole process easier for you. Hello, and welcome back to Hanging Out with the Dream King, a Neil Gaiman podcast by Clay Temple Media. I'm Glenn McDorman. And I'm Brent Helt. In this episode, Sandman number 28, Seasons of Mists, epilogue, or sometimes uh, infinity symbol. <laughs> uh, cover date of this was July 1991. The art on this issue is pencils by Mike Dragenberg. Inks by George Pratt, Daniel Vazo as colorist, Todd Klein as letterer, Elisa Quitney as assistant editor, and Karen Berger as editor. Right. Epilogue or infinity. In either case, this is it. This is the last issue of Season of Mists, but it is not our last episode on it because next month we're going to have our wrap-up coverage of this story arc. And when we do that, one of the things that we will address on that episode is our plans for proceeding with the Sandman. Because up to this point, the issue order and the order of volumes in the Sandman library have been the same. But that is not going to be the case anymore, or I guess technically it's not going to be the case for a while, though it will become the case again eventually. And so, yeah, we'll take that up next time. We'll also talk about what we're doing during the Sandman interlude. But of course, we're not actually there yet. We should talk about this issue before we start really thinking that far ahead. And so, yeah, this issue really is an epilogue. It's going to show us where several characters are, where they end up after the main action of this business with the key, after all of that's been settled. And so we're going to get Lucifer, Loki, the fairies, and of course, Dream and Nada. But we actually begin with the angels Duma and Remiel. We open in hell, where the angels have taken over, and the demons are coming back, and soon the chimneys will smoke, and the ditches will run with blood and offal and tears. Uh, this is just a, a, a great line here from, from Gaiman that I think emphasizes the Mordor-esque imagery of his hell, which is something I've enjoyed tremendously. And we also see that Duma and Remiel have erected a tall white spire that towers over everything else in the landscape. And I, I say white, Brent, but really it, it, it may even be that it's supposed to appear luminous. I would love to get your take on that. And, and I think just generally, we're definitely going to want to talk about Dringenberg's art here. But what really stands out in this opening is that all of the text is a monologue that Remiel is making to Duma about their situation. But Duma will not answer Remiel or even look at him. He just lounges on a couch with a, a thousand-yard stare. And so even though 
Remiel is the one who did not take the news well in the last issue, it seems like Duma is actually the one who now is struggling with this situation. Yeah, Remiel seems to have thrown himself fully into his new role. What struck me about this was, on the one hand, Remiel seems frustrated where he wants uh, Duma to say something and, and Duma doesn't. And so I felt frustrated on behalf of Remiel when you're talking to someone and they're just not talking back. And it's just like, this is your, your colleague and they're just not speaking. On the other hand, Remiel is talking so much <laughs> that you just want him to shut up which is how Duma feels. And it's, it's not, the art is left with kind of open to interpretation for us. The, the, um, the combination of the pencils from Dragenberg, um, as well as the inks and the colors, it's not clear to me, but I, I almost, and I, maybe it was an intentional decision not to do this, but I would not have been surprised if you decided to be less subtle to have like a tear going down Duma's face on one of the last close up panels we have here on page two, because he looks like he just is so sad. And so, and to me there, I felt the heft of the burden of the key to hell that Duma has, you know, laying on his stomach because he's having to shoulder this burden and his companion for the rest of eternity question mark is going to be Remio. And that's just who doesn't want to stop talking and just like, seems to be relishing in his new role in a way that you might imagine perhaps Lucifer did in the early days of when he showed up, right? After he gets over the anger, this is, he's in full on acceptance to the point of embracing maybe a little too much the idea of hell. You mentioned the the giant uh, white tower they've erected. Um, it struck me that uh, even though the art depicts it kind of in a white, um, I imagine that it uh, was meant to be silver, and that it's maybe just one of those things where the silver, when it gleams enough, as you, as you mentioned, maybe it's supposed to be kind of gleaming. It reads as white kind of to the eye, or it could be that because it's hell, so nothing can really be the way you want it to be. They want <laughs> it to look like one of the towers from the silver city, but it's just not quite right. Right. There's it, it's not perfect. It, it, to a quick pass, oh, it's a spire from the silver city that now exists in hell. Nope. No, it's not. It's a pale imitation and it's kind of just slightly off in a way that is more bothersome than if it was way off, right? If it was like a tortured, gnarled, like horn of some, you know, dead God, it would be less upsetting than it's kind of like a silver city to silver city spire, but it's not. No, I think you're absolutely right here that, uh, you know, a pale imitation is actually worse than just having to do something totally different. I also do like your interpretation of the color here because, right, the Silver City is silver in the light of the creator, but uh, perhaps not when it's just surrounded by this red light of hell. And like, where does that light even come from anyway? <laughs> no, that's good. I mean, Remiel's probably crushing souls for it. Before we move on, Brent, I want to talk about one more thing that we get with the, the angels here, which is simply that when we first encountered the angels here in Season of Mists, I made a big deal of the fact that although the depictions of them are drawing on uh, a long tradition of depicting angels in art, one of the key elements of depicting angels has been missing, and that is halos. But here we are, now that we have switched artists, now that Dringenberg is drawing the angels, these angels have halos. 
you're right. We, we, we now see very thin circular hoops, um, kind of above or around their heads. It's hard to tell coloring wise, but it, they may be the same material or reflecting in a similar way as the tower itself. So perhaps, I mean, maybe they have halos because angels have halos, or maybe Remiel decided he needs to give them something that reminds them how angelic they are and shining like the silver city. And and similarly, just not a lot of luster to that shine. Yeah. And possibly they just don't show up in the dreaming or something like that. But, you know, I don't have a lot of anxiety about this. I don't have to retcon this. I'm, I'm not concerned about this the way that people are frequently concerned about Klingon forehead ridges or whether or not they have hair. I mean, this is certainly something we are going to have to be very flexible with in the Sandman because really starting about now, Sandman is going to go through a number of artists. And in fact, we're going to get into a pattern where different story arcs have different artists and uh, people and places that we have seen before are going to be depicted very differently from artist to artist. And so we just have to accept that what we are seeing is not an objective depiction of this imaginary world, that it is always an artistic interpretation. No, I think that that's a fair comment to make. Duma's expression, I want to note on the second page, reminds me a lot of some of the cover art for the early issues when um, Dream goes to hell way back in Preludes and Nocturnes of Lucifer, where it's kind of the David Bowie-inspired, kind of staring off in the distance kind of look. And, and I, I think that that may be intentional, just as Remiel and Duma are almost interchangeably artistically. In fact, maybe they are. But the fact that to make Lucifer, who does look somewhat different from them, um, I think Jurgenberg tries to maybe tie things a little closer together, which is something we can look at a little bit later when we see Lucifer in the comic and note what is similar versus different compared to how the angels are depicted here. Yeah, we should plow ahead a little bit so we can we can get to that stuff because that's going to be some really juicy material. But we're actually going to take things out of order now for people who are following along as we're we're talking about the issue because at this point the issue gives us the first of two installments in which Dream and Nada close out their story, but we're going to take them together and we're going to do that then in a little bit when we get the second of them. And so First, we're going to check in with some of the other characters, and these we will just take in order. So we're going to start with Loki. We heavily implied last time, Brent, that something was up with Loki and Susano Wo. And what has happened is that Loki has swapped bodies with him or forced some kind of transmorph spell on him or something like that. It's not clear that we should speculate about that. But at any rate, Loki looks like Susanna Woe and vice versa. And so the Susanna Woe who asked to remain behind was really Loki in disguise. And now he's trying to sneak out of the dreaming while Dream is busy. But Dream catches him and he immediately knows what is up. And he cannot let this stand. He cannot let Susanna Woe take Loki's place in the cave to be tormented eternally because, you know, Dream offered Susanna Woe hospitality, which means he was obligated to protect him from harm, and uh, he didn't do that. But Loki begs not to be sent back, and Dream considers it. And in the end, he decides to create a Dream version of Loki to go put into the cave, which will then allow Susanna Woe to return home and also allow the real Loki to go free. 
But to be clear, he is not doing this out of kindness to Loki. He's doing it because it will place Loki in his debt. And he gets an agreement from Loki that Loki will owe him a favor. And this scene ends with the two of them returning to Dream's palace with Dream saying, very well, Loki, let us talk. And so I guess Dream is basically the godfather now. I mean, in some ways we do see Dream who, for the last couple issues, you know, with the hell key to hell, unsure what to do, really low on the schema meter, right? And suddenly we have the, maybe he is being scheming and he's up to things and cut to someone else. On the other hand, I also think that he was in a little bit of a bind here because as we discussed at length with the last issue, he extended certain rights of hospitality to all of the guests who were there. And that happened to include even Nada, who was imprisoned and he was unaware of. So therefore, it should also extend to Loki, who, while he was sort of imprisoned, not really, but not the way Nada was, but still he was being escorted by uh, Odin and Thor. Morpheus was was clearly aware that Loki was there and greeted him and such. So it, I think that he would have been in a bind to actually do something else to Loki. I mean, it is this, this trick that he's going to perform where he's not just going to rescue the Japanese thunder God, but substitute him with some kind of a illusory or changeling type thing to take his place so that no one knows to re- look after Loki right away. That's the favor I guess he's doing, but otherwise it feels like he also is trying to get himself cleverly out of a box here. Although that's nice to see too, whether it's him scheming or whether it's him being clever, we haven't seen a lot of either in the last couple issues where it's a lot of dream. I mean, we started the whole series off for season of mists of him being on the back foot when desire appropriately called him out for his terrible behavior and death backed up desire. And then everything has been out of his control since then. And now he finally is trying to exert some amount of control where he thinks he can. Although it never seems like a good idea to try to make a deal with Loki. No, it it does not. And so I'm left here with the feeling that Dream maybe perhaps isn't really being the godfather in you know you know and i'm really specifically invoking like the opening of the godfather the the, the first mm-hmm. godfather film right where it's just this kind of like abstract favor that i may need from you someday but that day may never actually come and then of course it does come in the film but it's not uh it's not a it's not a favor that has a a ton of price for the person who is going to owe that favor it's really to offer free funeral services for the Godfather's son, right? I hope I'm not spoiling the Godfather for anybody. Perhaps I I am. But really, the point I'm driving at here, Brent, is I I have the sense here that Dream is not just collecting abstract favors. I have the feeling that he has something specific in mind. Do you have that feeling? And then I suppose follow-up question is, what do you think it is? I mean, I do have that feeling because of the let us talk as opposed to just, you'll owe me a favor and then, okay, I'll do that. All right. Good day. Right. (laughs) We have the two of them ascending stairs and dream saying, you know, very well, let a, um, Loki, let us talk ellipsis. Um, the implication being that they're going to maybe discuss something sooner than later. And I actually am, am not, it's been a while since I've read some parts of the continuity. So I don't even a hundred percent remember 
what I think we find out later what manifested, but I don't know that I recall what is. Um, so I, I kind of want to not speculate in case I accidentally trip on a memory of what the comics do tell us, but, uh, but dream seems to have something in mind. So next up then are the fairies, Clericon and Nuwala. They are waiting to say farewell to Dream, and while they wait, Clericon talks about how he's gotten tired of one-night stands, he's lamenting that Senefero isn't going to write letters to him. I really love this. It's a, it's a great bit of character building. But what's really happening here is that Clericon has misled Nuala into thinking that she was the bribe that the fairies were offering Dream. Really, she was a gift for Dream, whether or not he did what the fairies wanted. And so now she is going to have to stay here in the Dreaming, which she does not want to do. And Dream does not want to imprison her. But Clericon insists that refusing to Tanya's gift would make her very mad. And we know that she and Dream have something going on. They they have got a complex and likely complicated relationship. We spent a lot of time in A Midsummer Night's Dream talking about that. In any case here, Dream accepts Nuala as a gift once Clericon points this out. And a word that is never used here, of course, Brent, is property. But that's what it feels like to me. And I'm more than a little disturbed and uncomfortable at this trafficking. This That's what this feels like. I mean, I almost said human, but I guess technically Nuala isn't human. But, you know, the phrase that we would use here is human trafficking or slavery. She's being regarded. She's being treated as property. She is. And this is kind of touching on certain views of sovereignty in which, you know, we have the sovereign of fairy who claims ownership not only of the land, but the people who are on it, Nuala included then, um, and therefore can give possession to Dream. And then if Dream is sovereign over the Dreaming, not so much in control and lord of the Dreaming, but also those who inhabit it. And we haven't really seen, I mean, we early on in the second issue, we saw Dream interacting with residents of the Dreaming, um, and he had agreements with them, Cain and Abel, right? But it wasn't that he ever owns them. They are just merely tenants on his land, essentially. But it doesn't feel like that's the case with Nuala. It feels here like perhaps Dream is feeling compelled to be bound by Titania's view of property ownership, including that of living entities um, in a way that maybe Dream wouldn't devise himself, but he does want to – I'm not sure. And of course, it has literally been years since we talked about Hobgadling together, Brent. But one of the things that's going on in that issue, Men of Good Fortune, is that Dream castigates Hobgadling for getting involved in the slave trade, castigates him about this twice. So being anti-slavery was an important element of Dream's character, a kind of ahistorical and kind of anachronic even element of Dream's character. I brought that up when we covered that issue. And so it does. It's not like Dream's morality about this issue, at least vis-a-vis humans, was relative. It was very clearly absolute. He thought that slavery was an evil and that Hobgadling should not have anything to do with it. But here, he's not even calling it that. He's not even calling attention to it. And yeah, I just, I just found that a little bit disturbing. But I, I also just couldn't puzzle it out. Do I think that 
your suggestion here, Brent, that it has more to do with uh, him, I think, reflecting or, or echoing the fairy's own views here has to be what what Gaiman is going for. And we had some references previously when we saw Titanian discuss this in Midsummer Night's Dream of the dangers of not accepting one of Titania's gifts. And when you, when you accept something, there are things that attach to that. Right. Um, and I think he just doesn't want, I think he wants to go along, get along to go along. And that's unfortunate for Nuala. Right. Yeah. He's, he's busy. He's got other things going on. And also we haven't necessarily seen the last of what's going to happen with Nuala here, though we do get a, a taste of it. I mean, immediately, as soon as she transfers into his ownership, essentially, certainly into his power, into his dominion, uh, he he makes her change her appearance. It turns out that for both Clericon and Nuala, the forms that they have had that we've been seeing on the page are magical. They're supernatural. They are uh, a glamour. And Dream makes her drop her glamour such that she has to have her natural appearance. And this also is something that immediately she does not like. She feels uncomfortable with this and, and really and really just doesn't like it. But nonetheless, Dream makes her do that. And here is one of the few times when Leslie Klinger does give us something in the annotations. From the script, he gives us Neil's comments about this transformation. Quote, It's still Nuala, only now she's about six inches shorter, has lost about 30 pounds, her hair is a mousy fringed mess, no longer a wonderful braided blonde deal. I don't really know or care whether or not she's wearing the same clothes that she was in the last panel or similar. This is what she actually looks like. Oh, her ears are still slightly pointed. She's still a fairy. She just isn't a very pretty fairy. Or at least, she's actually very sweet, but has the self-confidence of something that really isn't the slightest bit bit self-confident. At a time when its confidence has just been shattered. She has all the animal magnetism of a savings and loan scandal. Try to contrast this. She's about as far away from the haughty blonde beauty of the last few pages as possible. So that is Neil trying to describe how we convey this transformation and also how Nuala is feeling. And I think that, you know, there's a lot of success here that uh, Dringenberger and company do in the art of differentiating, particularly versus the panel right before, particularly that dejected look. Um, But it is kind of painful to watch because we're seeing something which, you know, a creature who has been, you know, harmed in some way, not physically necessarily, but still. And I think it's kind of petty of dream to do this um, versus suggesting you don't need to do that in the dreaming. Um, but to say, I don't like petty magic. It's just, it's, it strikes me as very different compared to how he dealt with Loki. Like Loki similarly did some kind of an illusory view of himself. And with that one, it's just, uh, well, you shouldn't have done that. Caught you again. And this, it's just like, yeah, not from you. Just, you got to stop that. I'm going to turn it off right now and, um, we'll find you someplace to live. I don't like these two dreams. I don't like the way we see the depiction of how he interfaces with Nuala 
versus how he interfaces with Loki. It feels like he maybe is not learning what he needs to learn about how we should interact with people, maybe particularly people who are identifying as female too, which is uh, something we'll get to later. Right. I mean, definitely, this is something that I think jumped out to me on this reading in ways that it hasn't before, precisely because I have just been teaching slavery, uh, American slavery, or New World slavery, I should say, in one of my world history classes. And I read out for students an account from uh, Frederick Douglass. It's the, the famous Aunt Hester scene. And this is certainly not at that level, but it still feels a little bit like that, right? Where there is a, a man who has a woman as property and can do whatever he wants with her. And in fact, does a lot of demeaning and demoralizing and humiliating things to her precisely so that she knows her place. And, and I think that was infusing here my reading of this scene. That said, we do learn cool things about the fairies here. I mean, this, this business with the glamour is certainly an interesting bit of, of world building. It's uh, something that that you know, certainly exist in fairy lore. In fact, we promised that we would get this again when we uh, were dealing with the word glamour, the concept of glamour back when we were talking about Terry Pratchett. And then also, I like Nuala. I'm interested in Nuala. And so I'm glad that she's going to stick around. And I'm interested in seeing what her story is going to be, because I think she's actually a really... I think she's been one of the most interesting characters who's been lurking in the background of this story arc. No, and I think that this is kind of the success of this particular, you know, couple page spread here, Glenn, is that we get some world building dumped in about the fairies. We also then suddenly click in our head that uh, Clarican probably doesn't look anything like we see Clarican, um, that we haven't been looking at anything that, you know, that the people who look like a regal Tolkien-esque version of, you know, the fey folk probably deep down under their glamour look more like the multitudes we saw in the fields watching the play with Shakespeare, you know, 20 issues or 10 issues, however long it's been since. <laughs> but we also instantly, Neil gives us a, a situation where we feel sympathy immediately for, immediately for Nuala. We immediately are on her side. We are team Nuala all the way. We are not like, oh, Loki, you're a trickster. We don't really like you, but you know, maybe you're kind of funny good to have you at someone else's party. Please don't come to ours. But with Nuala, we're instantly like, oh, this is someone we want to know more about. And we feel bad about what happened to them. And we hope that they get, you know, what is owed to them and that they're in a better place in the future. Um, and we want to read more to find out what happens and that hopefully that their arc does improve and not descend as they go into as you called it um, appropriately, seemingly slavery. That's a fantastic point, because this is also not the only scene in this issue where we are not going to find ourselves on Team Dream. And in fact, now we're back at the point where we finish up Dream's story with Nada. So it's time for us to go back and do the whole thing. Dream waits for Nada in some kind of study that I think would be right at home in a British mansion. And then when Nada arrives, Dream gives a flagrant non-apology apology, and Nada calls him on it. And, and she is mad, and understandably so, after what he has done to her, right? 10,000 years of torture in hell because she didn't want to be his queen, because she uh, resisted his romantic overtures. And she even slaps him. 
And Dream does not take that well, at least not at first. But then he does pause, he does seem to reflect, and he really apologizes. It's still not the most sincere apology that I've ever encountered, or the sincerest apology that I would have liked from him, but I do think he now really apologizes. And they even almost kiss at this point. Dream asks her again to be his queen. She says no, but then she counters by suggesting that Dream could give all of this up for her. He could stop being Dream, but he says no. So Dream then has something else to offer to Nada, and this is actually where the scene breaks. This is you know, meant to leave us wondering what that is going to be, but we're just going to get straight to it. And so with Nada's consent, Dream is going to reincarnate her inside a baby that has just been born in Hong Kong. And we see Dream in the hospital holding this newborn, and he says, I will not forget you, Nada. Live a good life. You will always be welcome in the dreaming whatsoever body you wear. And so, yeah, there's a lot to talk about. I think we're going to want to talk about the art. I know that we're going to want to talk about their relationship, but I want to start with the metaphysics, Brent, because just immediately I need to know, how is Dream able to do this, right? How is it within his purview to reincarnate the souls of dead people? Because that seems like that ought to be up to his sister. I think you're right, Glenn. And in my headcanon for this, he either between the panels or, um, well, probably between the panels has had some conversation with death in which he, you know, says, Hey, here's what I'd like to offer her. Or maybe even cause death is better than he is. <laughs> she might even have suggested like, look, here's what you should offer her here. Are the It's really the least you can do. I think that it would interrupt the flow of the comic um, and we don't want to have Dream, you know, I think it, in his arrogance, maybe Dream thinks he can do what he wants to do. But I don't I don't think it is within his power necessarily to do this. Um, it feels like something we're supposed to kind of, again, either assume something happened between the panels, which is my headcanon, or we just need to simply wave it away, right? Because otherwise it's the problem. It's the Superman problem where – uh, any given issue, you're like, oh, I want him to be able to 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 jump real high. Okay. I want him to be able to jump over a high building. Okay. No, I want him to be able to fly. Okay. Well, now he always flies. So <laughs> height can no longer be something that you use to uh, cause difficulty to him. And I think with Dream, there is kind of the limits of his power. We want to articulate that, you know, to some extent. It, so it, it because even if that newborn is dreaming, particularly with the lecture that he gave Desire that I've mentioned before um, at the end of Doll's House about not messing with mortals, it seems like it's messing with mortals both to reincarnate Nada, but also like that baby was already in gestation and about to be born seemingly before Nada made. I mean, maybe there's a piece of time that that has jumped here. But if a time has not jumped, what happened to whatever that baby's essence was when it was like, at what point did Nada enter it? Like <laughs> it's, there's a lot of questions. I think we need to somewhat hand wave away and assume that his sister took care of the complicated math. Yeah, no, I think you're absolutely right there that there's a, a scene that we just don't see with death who of course is though 
desire provides the impetus for this whole story, this whole story arc. Death herself was a key component there. She's kind of the, I don't know, the carrot to desire's stick, I suppose, in a, in a sense here. And so definitely I can imagine that Dream has consulted her again and that it's really Death who has done this. So I do think then that we can assume that also you know the baby's soul the original soul that was in there in utero uh, has been also taken care of that there has not been some destruction of a human soul but I'm, I'm with you there actually I hadn't thought about that Brent but I I share that kind of anxiety certainly you know, as as a parent I I was bonding with my son before he was born already right that he was responding to my voice Elizabeth's voice Elizabeth's voice too of course and yeah I would not have appreciated a soul swap prior to that. We don't want Nada to be the changeling who has replaced right. the, <laughs> the, the being, right? Because we, we, we want to like Nada. Um, and there's no reason not to. Um, so, uh, yeah, I think we just, we hand wave that away and we assume that uh, death is taking care of all the complicated accounting and um, everyone is made better for this. The one thing that we don't get told in terms of though the metaphysics of this is, what was the other option? So Glenn, I don't know, did you have thoughts as to what was the alternative that Nada could have chosen instead of being reincarnated in some kind of human form somewhere in the world? So presumably passing into some kind of afterlife. And and what exactly the afterlife is, of course, is something that we have spent a lot of time speculating about. I think really in every story arc, actually, of the Sandman so far, we've had some bit of of information about the afterlife, the way that the afterlife works in this imaginary world. And I have not really been able to put together a clear, coherent picture of it. But it does seem like there is some nice afterlife that accords with Nada's cultural beliefs about the afterlife that would have been available to her. So she could have chosen to go on to that. If that's the case, I'm interested in why she made this choice then to, to have another life on Earth, uh, you know, wiped of her memories, right? So she's not going to know that she's getting another go here. Why Why choose that over going into the a positive afterlife? Yeah, I, I think I have a similar interpretation that you do, where there's some kind of whatever culturally appropriate positive afterlife that she might have available to her. As Death has talked about before, everybody gets something slightly different. As to the decision for why not to have that, I, I don't know. I mean, it could just also be after so long experiencing something so terrible, it'd be nice if the last thing you experience isn't terrible in that way. But it, we're not led to believe ever that, I mean, it's never been something presented before. Like, hey, Nada, do you want to be out of hell and reincarnated? I think just like, hey, do you want to not be in hell? Yeah, that's what we want. <laughs> So we don't need to go the extra step. Uh, but I, my interpretation is is like yours, Glenn, where I think the alternative was some whatever for her culture and belief set would have been the positive outcome is what she would have received. Um, it could be that that would have been oblivion, though, because you're not sure, you know, for some belief systems that is what it is, right? You're right. That certainly could be what Nada thinks happens after death. And so that might have been the alternative. But I, I suspect not. And I guess that's because I'm I'm thinking that what Nada really gets out of this reincarnation deal is that she forgets the 10,000 years of torture in hell. We don't see her feeling defeated 
by that or broken by that. Here we see her being mad at Dream, but I don't think that you go through 10,000 years of torture without some serious business psychological trauma. And I guess that that's one of the things that is being erased for her here. And possibly that's, that's actually what she's really going to get out of it. Well, in addition to having the trauma erased, I think you're right. Additional to having the trauma erased, she's also kind of resetting almost to when she, before she met Dream, right? Because um, we know from Tales in the Sand that she was fairly young uh, when she kept seeing Dream and then she did the whole business with chatting with birds to eventually chase him down and then they became briefly lovers and then things went south. This way she can not only remove the 10,000 years, but she can try to get back to a point of time closest to, I want to do over on everything and I want you to not be part of it. Although I guess that interpretation makes him leaving her and saying, you're always welcome in the dreaming kind of creepier because she'll be in the dreaming, but she won't know it. So now he's like a weird stalker figure. <laughs> uh, I do have to say uh, to cause everyone to want to keep reading Sandman, I believe this is the last we see of Nada. So I don't think we have panels where he's just checking in on some uh, baby boy in Hong Kong constantly and like leering from the side. So rest assured reader. Right. Because he's, uh, he's got another baby he's got to check in on, right? This is the baby Daniel whom we've encountered, of course, also here in this arc. Yeah. I, I actually would have liked for Nada to choose to stay in the dreaming in some way, just because then we could have had a Nada Nuala buddy cop film of some sort. Mm. I don't, you know, I don't know what that would actually entail, but they could have been the police cops for the dreaming or something like that. Anyway, that's some fan fiction that I, I might go write later this afternoon. So one thing I just want to call out quickly in the art, I had mentioned that when we first met Nada, she talks to the weaver bird and the weaver bird gets her information and is punished for it. And so therefore scorched. So uh, I don't think it's supposed to be weaver birds in this, um, uh, what we get for this artistic presentation, this uh, painting, um, I am assuming of the two birds, but I really like them. It's kind of a yin yang effect in terms of the white with the black beak and then the black with, I assume a white beak that we just can't see all that well, or at least I'm not seeing all that well, but it nicely kind of calls back their history together. Um, but also kind of the troubling nature of like something was something got penalized out of this interaction that isn't even either of them. So that was a fun callback. Something else that's going on. That's kind of comical. Um, some continuity issues with the candelabra. Uh, there are a <laughs> bunch of candles on the table and then it's off and then it's on and then it's off. And it's only upon like multiple readings that I picked up on that where I was really looking at all of the details of what um, Drigenberg bothered to put in the art. Um, and I found it funny. I don't think there's any particular rationale as to when it is there or not. I think it's just sometimes he uh, included it and sometimes he was focused on other things. And, uh, you know, well, it wasn't important. I don't want to say he forgot about it, but you forgot about it. Yeah. It's not as flagrant as Mark Hamill's hair in Star Wars though. So, but yeah. I did, I did notice it. I'm glad you brought up this painting, Brent, because uh, I was interested in that one, but I'm also super interested in another painting that we see when we get a kind of longer shot of this study that they're in. And this painting is not presented nearly as vividly or with as much, uh, you know, close up detail. It's basically just like not really even in focus, but what we see 
in this shot, this this painting is a crucifixion scene. I can't really make out any other details than that, but there is someone hanging on a cross. And I, I wonder if, does Klinger, I guess probably not, but does Klinger have anything to say about this? No. Klinger has nothing to say about any of the art. Uh, in in particular, the art on the wall, the art within the art, he's not comment on in this issue, which is unfortunate because, um, and nor is there any mention in Highbender's uh, Sandman Companion that I, I noticed, which is unfortunate because uh, I think you're right. I think that is kind of a very out of focus crucifixion scene of some kind. I don't know if it's just was kind of convenient thing to throw up there that because Drickenberg wanted to have something probably not because of where it's located in the panel. So it might be the martyrdom that dream always thinks he has in contrast to the actual martyrdom that Nada has experienced. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm going to fall back on something that I, I just teased out in the last issue when we were focusing on the big splash panel of the audience chamber and trying to to read the ceiling there as well. And I, I just made an offhand comment at that point that it seemed like this palace maybe is the you know, dream palace of some late Victorian architect. And this room looks like that too. This study, this study looks like it's kind of the dream study of a late Victorian, maybe even an Edwardian architect. And that these paintings on the wall are precisely the sort of painting that you would have in a study like that, that presumably this crucifixion scene here is maybe some treasure of the the Renaissance or something like that, that is at the very least a status symbol because you've got it here. You know, you were able to purchase that at extreme cost. And so I'm actually now wondering if, you know, it was a joke when I said it last time, but I really do wonder, did Dream actually even make this palace? Is it possible that he's just using some mortal's dream? and is inhabiting this. And so he didn't really design this room. No, I think that that's actually a, a good interpretation, Glenn. And maybe that's my headcanon now as well. It's that it is a collection of things that are created within the dreaming, but not necessarily, f he's not necessarily the creator of it. It's, it's the mortals who are producing these uh, pieces of art and then, but they only reside in the dreaming. Um, so I like that. Well, one other art thing I want to mention real briefly, because um, I forgot to before, is there's a thing in which we don't see transition between some of these scenes for Dream. He just seems to uh, walk into frame or be there. But at the end of the interaction with uh, uh, Clericon and Nuala, we see Dream just turning to look off panel and we hear not now uh, voice as she says kakul i'm ready uh, i'm wondering if he is kind of existing either simultaneously in multiple places or for him distance is so irrelevant within the dreaming and particularly within the palace that he is essentially omnipresent um, it's not that he's teleporting it's that he is literally omnipresent so he is maybe interacting with all of these people simultaneously or he is not he is in all of the rooms he is not only in which um if he is in all of the rooms then also he potentially was party to all of the conversations that all of the guests had back when they were in their cabins scheming about how to connive and convince him which means he's aware that bast doesn't really know where his brother is just knows information that maybe helps get there. And also he, you know, had a read on what was going on with, um, Corinzen and, uh, Merkin 
um, in, up to him being captured and also all of the Odin asking Loki, can we trick him? And Loki saying no, like that all of that is in a place where he is always present is uh, fun. Certainly, we have seen him project himself into rooms in his palace, right? That's how he summoned all of his staff when he was announcing that he was going to hell. So you would think then that that type of communication certainly could flow both ways. On the other hand, we do see him being ignorant of things that are happening in the dreaming. Like he relies on Matthew to come tell him things and so on. So I, I suspect that he doesn't quite have the ability that you're suggesting he does, even if logically perhaps he ought to. Gaiman doesn't want him to be, you know, he doesn't want to have this Superman problem that you uh, you brought up earlier. No, and I think that the, you're right. Because as I think about it, he also would, he wouldn't have had to figure out what Loki did because that would have occurred in the castle. So anyways, that was just interesting that he, that the, how dream is moving between these panels. But then the, there was a bit of dialogue that struck me as I read this. And some of this we can talk about a little bit more when we do the wrap up, but I thought it's worth mentioning the specific uh, dialogue here, which is right before dream escorts Nada uh, to be reincarnated in the upper right hand corner. Nada says, I spent 10,000 years in hell, Kaikul. I blamed you for my pain. Could I have left? Could I have walked away from that? And he simply says, perhaps. I feel like this is a bit of a dodge because we wanting to have hell be a place where when we go back to prior issues, it's something that those who are there have kind of in some ways chosen for themselves. On the other hand, we also have as major plot points that someone is imprisoned there. And I think that those ideas, there's a certain amount of cognitive dissonance to try to line those things up. And I think that this perhaps, and this whole panel is a way to kind of acknowledge the sort of plot hole on this and just to leave it vague so the reader can interpret as they see fit. No, I think that's exactly right. It's it's a difficult concept to wrap our heads around the idea that people are in hell because they want to be. I mean, if that's true, then you know, as what you're imagining, Brent, is that when they don't want to be here anymore, they get to leave. But what is the mechanism by which you would leave in that circumstance? Like, how does one get out of hell when we have seen that hell is a very real material place that has a, a key? You can you can lock it up. It's a place that you can go to. So how do you actually get out of it? Right. There are all sorts of questions about how that would actually work. And so while it is certainly an interesting idea cosmologically to to think about it that way. It perhaps then also metaphysically has some some real limitations there. And so just saying perhaps and shrugging your shoulders in answer to that question, uh, especially in answer to a question from someone who is not a part of the Abrahamic cosmology, the Abrahamic cosmological system here, that yeah, this is it is I think punting. Uh, in uh, American football terms. Well, we've got a few scenes left to go here. And first thing we're going to do is check in with Lucifer. Uh, Lucifer is on a beach in Perth, Australia. He's watching the sunset. An old man talks to him and tells him his whole life story. And this man used to play on this beach with his whole family, which is to say his wife and his twin sons. And then when his sons grew up, one of them died in Vietnam. And then this man and his other son got really drunk as part of their grieving, but then they drove a car 
and the other son died in the crash, while the old man himself was injured and now uses a cane to walk. And then, later, this man's wife died from breast cancer. And so he's all alone. And all things considered, he's had a pretty terrible life. But still, he comes down to this beach almost every night just to watch the sunsets. And he says that any god who can make beautiful sunsets like they get here, well, you have to respect him, even if he has taken your family from you. The old man leaves, and Lucifer thinks by himself for a moment, and then he says, All right, I admit it. He's got a point. The sunsets are bloody marvelous, you old bastard. Satisfied? And so... I guess, Brent, that we're meant to understand here that Lucifer also feels victimized by God, but he also, like this old man, is on some kind of journey to make his peace with that? Yeah, I think we're meant to find some amount of parallels in the stories of the two of them. And uh, Neil Gaiman uh, does talk a little bit about this scene in Highbender's Sandman Companion, so I'll share kind of what Neil had to say about it. Quote, I set it in Perth because I wanted a beach that faced the setting sun, and also because Australia is about as far as you can get to the end of the world without falling off. One thing I somewhat regret is having the old man's son die in Vietnam. I put that in because Americans tend to forget Australians fought in the war too, but in retrospect, the line probably just ended up confusing readers. Also, a lot of readers didn't understand that palm is simply an Australian word for an English person. But yes, I like that scene a lot too. It's as close as we get to reproach, to reproach Mont between heaven and hell. Because we also have you know, Lucifer who is known for rebelling and saying no to God. And we saw in the last issue, Remiel say no to God too, right? Who here finds one place where he acknowledges that he agrees I mean, he directly agrees with this man on the beach, but also in some ways by approving of the creator's work, he is also kind of approving of the creator a little bit. Although, you know, uh, certainly uh, those of us who read a lot of uh, novels sometimes want to make sure that we are distancing our approval of work from the creator of the work. But yet, in this case, he approves of the creation of the sunsets, right? And so there we actually have them not clashing, which may be the first time that we clearly see evidence that Lucifer is willingly kind of agreeing with and going along with something that is part of uh, his, it's his, it's Lucifer's creator's kind of plan. Right. Certainly what's being suggested here is that they have disagreed over something in the creation, right? And Lucifer is now saying, yeah, okay, I admit that you were right and I was wrong. But grammatically here, it then suggests that the argument, the the conflict was about sunsets. Uh, Lucifer <laughs> thought they were a bad idea. God wanted them. And now Lucifer, a long, long, long time later, is finally saying, you're right. They are pretty good. I was totally wrong. And um, I, of course, that's that's not actually what has happened. There's no way that that's what has precipitated the, you know, the, the rebellion in heaven, the fall of the angels into the pit of hell was not a clash over whether or not there should be multicolored sunsets. Sure, Glenn. But I think it's like that song Breakfast at Tiffany's where it's just about finding that one thing that you both kind of like, um, despite the horrible racism in it, um, <laughs> rather than, you know, and you just you got to have something to to build a relationship or stop a relationship that probably should end from ending uh, either way. <laughs> What, what, I can't remember what that song's about. I still think you shouldn't have created humans and certainly shouldn't have made us bow down to them. But, um, well, 
we both like sunsets, and at least that's one thing we've got. All right. Well, let's check in with the uh, angels in hell again here as we are approaching the end of this issue. So Remiel and Duma now take a tour of hell. They're flying around and checking in on how it is operating. And we've alluded to this already, Brent, which is that Remiel at least has big plans for hell. Under the leadership of angels, the flames of hell will become refining fires, burning away the dross, leaving purity and repentance and good. And this must all be part of God's plan, right? Part of his plan for a happily ever after, for everyone in hell. And so Remiel has here just really, really, really leaned into this role that he at first resisted even to the point of rebellion. It's such an interesting character move. And also, I'm really excited for opportunities to check in on the new and improved hell uh, as this series continues. It, it's fun to see Remiel be so wrong. And just the interaction that he has, particularly when he goes and talks with someone who's being tortured, and he thinks he's providing something that you know, maybe he thinks makes them feel better. And the person's response is like, no, you're making it far worse. <laughs> Which, again, maybe actually Remiel likes because he thinks that the goal now is to burn away all of the sin and all of the evil to make the, the creatures perfect, which is just, I mean, he's, he appropriately sounds like he's uh, uh, unhealthy uh, in his outlook on how souls should be treated. But that's what the job is. And again, if we go back to the idea that the soul maybe has chosen to be here in some way or shape or form, then like, it's, 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 it's kind of wild to me what's going on. And Remiel is doing a lot of inferring here, right? God has not given him the instructions to transform hell into a prison that is for that is meant to be reforming people as if people are then going to have some some chance to get out of here and and not even just get out of here but possibly to ascend to heaven right remiel is taking all of that on his own and that seems actually like a pretty big overstep of his limited managerial responsibilities and so really he's seeming to be quite like Lucifer here, a little too big for his britches, forgetting who's actually in charge around here, you know, elevating himself to a station that isn't really his. And in one particular place in his monologuing, he says, I never imagined it would be like this, our realm of reflection, our realm of shadow, our little realm of pain, and we are kings or queens or angels. So first of all, there is the um, wonderful kind of self-anointing of sovereigns sovereignty of kings and, and queens and, and, and making themselves the royalty, right? But also angels, because still believing that even though you are cut off from your creator, you still believe that you are the one delivering the message of the creator, which is horrible arrogance if you don't have a direct line with that creator to think that you will always be in lockstep with what that message is, Right. Yes, and you bring up a good point here, Brent, which is you know to to think about or to wonder about the extent to which 
Remio and Duma really are cut off from the creator. I mean, are they even capable of receiving transmissions down here in hell? Perhaps that's not a question we should tackle here at the end of this issue, since we are going to devote a huge chunk of uh, uh, the wrap-up episode to thinking about hell and heaven and really all of these issues. But that's a question that I hadn't hadn't considered before that we definitely should talk about next time. I do want to also note that the dialogue that I read has some comical art of some kind of a demon with so many teeth that looks like something out of where the wild things are um, as it's throwing a body in its mouth. And it's terrifying when you look at the thing being dangled in its mouth and the things waiting to be dangled in its mouth to the sides. Um, But it's comical if you just look at the creature itself and like these long skinny arms and like just fun eyes. It, It, it's it's great um and i really liked it even though it kind of felt out of place yeah it's 100% a jim henson creation this is straight out of labyrinth i mean like literally like this is straight out of <laughs> out of labyrinth it seems to me to be kind of even just a direct homage to to labyrinth it's that uh bog where it's just nothing but um feces and farting that's that's exactly that's exactly <laughs> what it is yeah <laughs> well i will uh, i'll spoil something a little bit just to say that my favorite panel this issue brent is the one right above it so we can actually revisit the two of them in tandem but before we get to that we've still got one last page we need to talk about where we are back in destiny's garden and we see him reading in his book really the same narration that we just read about remiel in hell on the preceding two pages Destiny then closes the book, and we get three shots of him standing in his garden, each a little more zoomed out. And then, as a caption for the final panel, we get this. October knew, of course, that the action of turning a page, of ending a chapter, or of shutting a book did not end a tale. Having admitted that, he would also avow that happy endings were never difficult to find. It is simply a matter, he explained to April, of finding a sunny place in a garden where the light is golden and the grass is soft, somewhere to rest, to stop reading, and to be content. From The Man Who Was October by G.K. Chesterton, Library of Dreams. And that is the end of Season of Mists. We ended it as we began it with uh, Destiny walking uh, alone in his garden. And the art here is absolutely stunning. I, of course, love any time we get to to see Destiny's garden, Destiny's abode. I love all of it. And I really love this bit of imaginary Chesterton that we get here, too. It actually reads quite like Chesterton. Gaiman has done a really good pastiche of Chesterton here, and uh, that's really exciting. This is certainly a book that I, I wish actually existed. It's a great bit of imaginative fanfic that we have here, where, where Neil Gaiman gets to write fanfic as if he was writing uh, Chesterton. Um, and it, you know, because he is inventing the quote, it works well for the scene as well. And this business here with October talking to someone named April, I mean, this really reminds me of October in the Chair, the short story October in the Chair that we covered, you know, I don't know, a year or so ago, maybe a little more than that, which was written later than than this. But it does seem like Gaiman had this idea of a Chesterton novel in which the months of the year are personified supernatural 
creatures of some sort and that they're you know, interacting with each other in the same way that the Endless are interacting with each other in the Sandman. And uh, we have this little bit of it here. And then we've got the short story, October in the Chair. Perhaps we'll be on the lookout for more tidbits of this. But in some ways, it kind of seems like a big project that Gaiman had in mind that, alas, really does only exist in Lucian's library. I like the idea also in this quote of echoing somewhat the thoughts, um, though maybe better articulated of what the waitress was thinking back when we were at the diner, where she was thinking about like the trouble is that in the long run, if you write long enough, then everyone dies. So you just have to stop writing when the characters that are a good place, um, which is, a, I mean, the whole scene here with destiny kind of serves as a, as a bookend literally, but also as a, okay, some people have gotten happy endings. Now you could stop reading now find the sunny place stop, have a rest, be content, but you're not going to, you're going to read the next issue and things are going to not be great. But also, even if we stop here, as we've talked about, things are not a hundred percent hunky dory for everybody involved. Like Nuala is now in a very bad position and Probably won't revisit it in the pages of Sandman, but there's a lot of problems that those various deities had who wanted hell for various reasons who have to deal with that. Um, I think I feel bad for Duma, who is stuck for all eternity listening to Remiel pontificate about his great ideas, which are all terrible. Yeah, I mean, it's really only a happy-ish ending, even just for Dream. That's that's really about it. Because I don't even think, you know, Remiel's happy in hell. He's he's having like a, a mad scientist transformation, essentially. And yeah, they both would have been better off staying in heaven. So, right. I mean, it just tells us that, you know, if we're going to think of this as a happy ending, it is, well, I suppose it's happy for Nada as well, right? She got out of hell. She's having her trauma erased. And, you know, this whole arc, I mean, at least it, it begins and ends with the idea that it is a story about Dream and Nada's relationship. And that does seem to have a happy ending, but only if we look at the story that way. And as you say, Brent, not from the perspective of anyone else in the story, really. And of course, we will have a lot more to say about Dream's arc and what this whole story arc is when we do the wrap-up episode next time. But we still have to talk about the cover, the title, and pick some favorite panels here. And this is the first time in quite a while, Brent, that the cover features Dream. It is Dream in the form that he takes as Kai Kool, and then drawn over his body is a bare-breasted depiction of Nada with a red mouth. And then there are also some symbols in that same shade of red that I take to be the script for the language of Nada's civilization from 10,000 years ago, though that might not be the case, but that's how I'm interpreting that at at any rate. And uh, I really dig this cover, Brent. It, It feels like the type of art that I think Paul Clay would have done if he'd been in like a goth phase. And I love it. I did want to note uh, in the uh, Dust Covers book, Dave McKeon, uh, there's a note from Neil Gaiman about the cover, though. Uh, He did not like one part of it, it seems. Uh, He said, for some reason, the colors in this cover when reproduced were very odd. The border is made of beaten copper foil and is copper colored, not the bright yellow it appears on the cover. Um, And there's a slightly more coppery version that is available in the dust covers um, where it does have less of that yellow tinge. Um, I mean, that, that is a problem of 
you know, the mass production of comics is that sometimes colors just won't quite convey, particularly if you're changing, taking something that's mixed media and then trying to put it in a two-dimensional, you know, uh, paper <laughs> with inks layered on it, uh, version, but, uh, but I, I like it a lot. Um, I like, um, how Kaikul almost has like a serpent eye. Like he doesn't, he seems somewhat alien. Um, the Nada figure does feel more relatable, even though it's, you know, somewhat more representational in some ways of a person, but still, um, feels like it has more life in it than, uh, the Kaikul character who seems to have kind of be a thing of otherworldliness and, and maybe even of, I mean, it reminds me a little bit of like the clown from it, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, let's talk about the title now. Can you give us the, uh, the synoptic text here? Sure. Uh, the subtitle of this one is in which we bid farewell to absent friends, lost loves, old gods, and the season of mists and in which we give the devil his due. And this is a uh, familiar verbiage for those of us who remember earlier in the series when um, there was a toast given by Hob Cadling. Right. Yeah. I mean, this is ex- exactly what he said. I, I'm not sure that actually in this issue, though, we are giving the devil his due. It seems like the devil is giving God his due, at least as, as far as sunsets are concerned. Well, I mean, that might be so that might be a nod at the idea that as he's discussed earlier um, in earlier issues, uh, Lucifer's like, I thought I was rebelling, but maybe I really wasn't. Maybe it was just actually part of the plan. And then I, and then the idea we learned last issue where there needs to be a hell to be the shadow reflection of the silver city. And so Lucifer was working a job and he thought it was his idea that he wanted the job, but he really wasn't. And so maybe sharing the sunsets with him, was actually the creator giving him a tiny reward. Um, so maybe that was giving him something, uh, letting him see that beauty that is different every day um, in a way that the mortal humans that he despised so much and that were the cause of his fall in part um, cause, you know, he's able to see and appreciate it the way that, that we are. Right. And so maybe that's, we're going to give you one, right? Cause we already know that he's cut off from seeing the creator, from hearing the creator's voice, et cetera, et cetera. But you can see and enjoy this part of beauty. And that's not something that he could do when he was in hell. And maybe this is the first step in Lucifer's own redemption, Lucifer's own rehabilitation. Uh, perhaps that's something we'll, we'll think about, or maybe we'll get even more of that in the future in, in the issues, but uh, it's something we can think about next time as well. Well, all right, Brad. Well, I have already tipped my hand about what is my favorite panel. So uh, what what is yours? You know, there were a few that jumped out to me in this issue. And even as we've talked about it, I've kind of changed my mind at least three times. Um, but the one I think I'm going to go with is the one where we finally see Nuala as she truthfully is with the glamour stripped from her. Um, we just have the word from dream there. It's kind of a heartbreaking image because of what's happening to Nuala against her will. But because Noel is a character who I like so much, who we'll see more of, um, and this is kind of the introduction of her um, in this kind of dejected form, and the how well that Dringenberg captures in the lines he used to, to capture her face, kind of astonishment and sadness around her eyes, and just it, it, 
there's a lot of heavy lifting that's going on here. Um, and I think that even though it's not something I want to have on my wall, uh, it is for me very much a panel that kind of conveys a lot about this issue as a whole too, where Dream's getting what he wants. He's getting his there, right? Not necessarily anyone else's. And there is maybe a problem where he is still not understanding, kind of like his non-apology to, to, not, to Nada. He is still not quite understanding how to change. He is still very much trapped as who he is, and it has negative ramifications on those around him. So I, I think it's my favorite panel. It's a great choice. I, I think the the detail that really makes this work for me is that her mouth is just a little bit open, like she's in shock here at at having to drop her glamour, and it really really sells. Not you know not just the shock, but the, I think kind of horror of what this experience, this particular experience, the dropping of the glamour at any rate, is like for her in this moment, and yeah, it really makes me care for her, makes me care about her. And I I hope that her story will in fact have uh, a happy ending. So then your favorite panel, Glenn, is in hell. Right. Yeah. It's the top of the final section in hell. It is right above the uh, uh, the fart swamp homage <laughs> that we get. But this one is not comical. This one actually, I think, is, is quite grave, quite serious. We see a forest of black smoking chimneys against a red sky. And then in the foreground is a gray toad-like monster. It is very creepy. Uh, the monster, I mean, I guess it's a demon, I suppose, but at any rate, it is exactly how I imagine the Clark Ashton Smith uh, Cthulhu mythos god Sathagwa looks like. And really just looking at this panel, I mean, it just really, really, really makes me want to play a serious business Weird Tales brand of D&D or go on like a big, uh, big sword and sorcery binge read. Yeah, no, it's it's a great one. And I love the combination of kind of the very organic looking creatures along with the very inorganic, you know, industrial, you know, smoke works in the, in the background. It's just, it's great. It's, yeah, it certainly got more of that hell as Mordor business happening here, which is a, a thing that I, I don't think I would ever tire of. I, I have just really enjoyed the depictions of hell in general in Season of Mists. And of course, we will say more about that again next episode as well when we're wrapping up Season of Mist. But I think this is a pretty good note on which to end this one. I'm Glenn McDorman. And I'm Brent Helt. You can find us and our other podcasts at claytemplemedia.com. As we have said perhaps countless times during this episode, we will be back next month with our wrap-up episode for Season of Mists. And until then, pleasant dreams. <laughs>